But bonus depreciation basically says if you buy a house and we do a cost segregation, which breaks apart components of it into sort of littler components instead of just a house, now we have floors, windows, etc. Some of those with a shorter life, bonus depreciation says you can write it all off this year. So for 2022, that is 100% of that cost. And so on average, 25% of the building value qualifies. So if your building value is 100 grand, we can create a $25,000 deduction for this year specifically. Next year for 2023, that amount goes to 80%. So it would only be 80% of that cost. Um, So the important thing to kind of be mindful of for like right now, year end, is that you don't have to do the cost segregation by December 31st. Please stop harassing these poor cost segregating people because you don't need to bother them in the next like 20 days. Like you've got time. Your rental though, the property you are thinking about doing a cost segregation on does need to be in service by the end of the year. So it has to be ready and available for rent. So if you're closing today and you've got to do like a six month renovation before it's even like able to be listed, you might miss the boat on this. If you have anything right on the verge there, like if you are um, negotiating on a tenant occupied property, because then it would be in service when you bought it, it had tenants, try to close by December 31st. If you are trying to finish up a reno to list a property, try to do it by December 31st. That's the like lock-in date to have that property ready by year end. And then you could do a cost segregation at any point before you file your taxes and create that big write-off for the year. Welcome to Rio Radio, episode 71 with Natalie Kaladi. You're listening to Rio Radio, the nationally trusted name in real estate investing. We dig deep to discover investors' why in real estate. If you want to skip all the BS and get in investors' heads, you're in the right spot. Be one of the thousands to check out RioRadio.com. Owen. Hi, buddy. Hey. Hey. <laughs> what have you been up to in the last week, man? Uh, well, uh, lots of stuff. My youngest daughter turned 11. That's pretty exciting. Nice. Uh, Should we sing her happy birthday? No, happy we probably shouldn't. No, no. Uh, still saying no, guys. I don't know if you hear me. I don't know if my mic is cutting out. Uh, still no. Happy birthday, dear Olivia. Olivia. Happy birthday to you. Okay, that that that. You know what? That actually wasn't bad. We'll leave that in, maybe. <laughs> because I Dennis have a nice creative the control. There we go. There you we know, go. And, and just like Jennifer, we've never met Olivia. Either. It's Jen. Okay, not Jennifer. And do, you, do, you, do you know that Olivia was one of the names that was on my wife's list for my daughter Skylar? No, really. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Actually, it was like her number one. It's super common now. Like, which is. You know, it seems like cyclical when you're choosing a baby name because you're like, okay, what hasn't been taken in a long time? And then they're like, what about Lorraine? Lorraine. And then like just, Back to the Future. Yeah, exactly. Is that where you're from? Quiches. Quiches. Lorraine Quiche. Uh, and then there's all of a sudden a million kids named Lorraine. There you go. Not Lorraine Quiche. Well, maybe. Oh. Their last name's Quiche. There's a Trinidadian Calypso song called Lorraine. I, you all would love it. But anyway, that's side <laughs> note. Huh? I love it. Don't I do himself. love it. Natalie Kaladi, holy crap, you guys, end of the year knowledge bomb coming at you live. BP superstar. BP superstar. She has <laughs> been not only a featured contributor at BP Con, she's also all over the forums 
Bigger pockets, get on there. If you guys haven't been on there, start there. I mean, you t- did you you said you originally found her on the BP forms. Didn't you? I I you're started a, you're a form expert. I started noticing her years ago on the things that she was contributing to conversations that were going on, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like I made a note, like she is a really good contributor. So I started following her after that. She got better and better and better and better. And here we are like 10 years, 12 years later. And she is a tax slayer. I like mean, she's awesome. She, like she's on stage during the BP yeah. the last BB con. And then all, I mean, I, one funny memory I have is you and I were actually sitting uh, in line to check in our rooms at the BP con in San Diego. And you look over and you're like, I think that's Natalie over there. I had no yeah. Idea. And I and I I had I was following her, but I'm like, I'm like, but she was like dressed really incognito, you know, big black glasses. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> but yeah. but ever since then, uh I, I started uh following her heavily and uh, and then we reached out to her. We talked to her a few times at PPCon. I reached out to her online. I'm like, I'm like, Natalie, we'd love to get you on. So guess what, guys? If you're end of the year and you're trying to figure out, well, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? I have some rental properties, right? I'm just starting out in real estate investing. Tune in to this episode because she talks about very over uh like commonly overlooked real estate tax mistakes. She talks about things you should do to plan the end of the year, you know, like when you're prepping your tax returns to send to your accountant. Like do tune into this because oh. you're you're going to be blown away, and also tips on like how to vet your account to make sure that they're the right account oh, for your real good. estate uh, platform. Great point. Yeah. yeah, she gives some good questions to ask. You know, potential attorneys out there, if you're just starting out in this business, you have no idea what you're even going to ask. Mm-hmm. Listen up. When and then I sounded really smart when I started ask, asking about Schedule C versus Schedule E. You did. But, you were, yeah, but, but I really, saw the but, twinkle in your eye. But really, it was just the research I did. And I just wrote the notes down. Yeah, <laughs> Ted, Ted's our uh, in-house expert researcher. So <laughs> yeah. no, this is gonna be great, guys. Like Natalie Claudie, like killer, killer info. Tune in. End of year tax tips. Here we go. Okay, so real quick, this is a quick podcast. It's sixty minutes. We had to um, we had to respect her time because she's paid by the hour. Yeah, <laughs> we we know you guys aren't, so uh, that's why we always so, put out three hour podcasts. Of for course, you. so this one's really uh, really concise, and so because of that, let's just get into a couple of things like today's golden, golden nugget. nugget. So today's golden nugget: make offers sight unseen at the end of the year in a in an environment like this, where there's huge interest rates, stuff that's been on the market for a while. December in the Midwest, not a great time to uh, sell property, but if you're out there and you're looking or, for a deal. Or, or Airbnb properties. <laughs> that, there's also that. Yeah. So uh, make offers. This is the time, guys. Like This is when deals are made right now. So traditionally in, in my brokerage, because uh, we're all in investment brokerage, in the month of December, we have our highest sales every single year for the last six years. What do you attribute that to? People, That's interesting. T- tax reasons. Uh, okay. P- people need write-offs and they're like start a, a good, uh, a, a good real estate investor knows exactly what their kind of situation is at the time. And they know that they got to write off some extra stuff or so they don't pay 60, 70, 80, $100,000 in taxes the, the next coming year. And so because of that, they might need to make some specific purchases to try to offset that, right? Yeah. So she gives some great tips. Uh, when you're planning for the end of the year, tax planning strategies, Natalie Kalati, like she comes 
guns blazing. Of course. I love it. Yeah. So uh, good stuff here. We talk about 1031 exchanges. We talk about cost segregation studies, what it takes to become a real estate professional and get that as as your uh, like designated status mm-hmm. for moving forward in uh, you know real estate tax planning. Like so many good things in here. So let's get into the podcast with Natalie Kaladi. Natalie Kaladi. How are you? Happy Monday. Good. Yeah, happy Monday indeed. How are you guys doing? Uh, doing well. We we are really thankful you're joining us today. Uh, I saw you in line at BPCon in San Diego, and uh, I think, uh, Ted, you you guys met, right? We, Brief, we, real we briefly. Briefly chatted, but I think it was more Instagram than anything. Yep. Yeah. Ted's a really good Instagram stalker, so we appreciate uh, <laughs> you guys connecting there and, uh, and uh, being part of this action today. Hey, I wanted to, uh, I know you are getting to be world-renowned in your tax strategy and advice, uh, but we, I don't think, have had a lot of discussion on other podcasts about your real estate investing background yourself. So you give a lot of great advice, but I wanted to start out, tell us about the $50 mobile home that you bought. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I started with real estate investing was I did exactly what you shouldn't do. And I bought a, like a guru course that cost too much money and was sponsored by some dude on TV. Um, I tried to wholesale and just got my ass handed to me. And then I was like, what can I do to redeem this? Cause I was right out of college and looking for like an affordable way to get into investing in Seattle where houses are $700,000. So I was sitting there with my best friend. And I was like, what about mobile homes? Can we flip mobile homes? And she was like, I, uh, like no one, no one talks about this. And so that was what I started off with. Cause I was like, well, let's try, right. They're so cheap that if I'm terrible at this and I fall on my face, I'm not out a half million dollars. <laughs> kind of a soft landing when you have a 50 yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually found the very last flip I did, I'd done a few of them, but the last one I did, I was running, um, an RSS feed where it would send me search results that matched my criteria from postings on Craigslist for mobiles under, I think it was under like 20 grand was like what I was looking for. And I had a, uh, a result come in at like two in the morning and I was awake doing something. I don't know. And she was like, I just want it gone for free. I'll give it to you for free. If you want it, it needs all this work. And I was like, well, for free, I really can't mess up too bad now, right? And so I was like, well, okay, we got to make this legal. Let's put some money on it. I'll give you 50 bucks. Let's go from there. And so the next morning I showed up sight unseen with a check for $50 and a contract in hand. What? <laughs> <laughs> so not only did you buy a mobile home for $50, you gave the seller uh more than what she was asking for it, which she was probably thankful for a little bit, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's so funny with mobile homes is it's almost the opposite of a lot of other real estate where they they have value, obviously, but a lot of people didn't plan to own them, right? So this thing with this lady and with a lot of people is they either inherit them um, and a lot of them are in 55 and older parks. So they now inherited something. They're paying five, six, seven hundred $700 a month in lot rent for this mobile home in a park. They can't live in it because they're 40 and they're just like bleeding money every month. But realtors don't want to really sell mobile homes because their commission's like $1.50. <laughs> so like these people are just stuck with them. So you would be shocked at how good of deals you can find on mobile homes because people, they're just like a cash outflow for most people. They just want them gone and don't want to deal with them. Yeah. One of, one of the first properties I ever bought was my great aunt lived in a double wide mobile home in a really small town in Southwest Iowa. And that was one of the first deals I ever bought. But I remember it being 
a lot different because this one in particular actually had like a uh, what do they call it a re- uh, the registration? Like it actually oh was, yeah, like, it was titled. Yeah, it was roadworthy yeah. at some point. <laughs> Right. So you have to get a title to it, which is not like a deed of trust and a promissory note and all that. This is an actual like car title. Yeah. Right. Car title. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's interesting uh, that it's real considered real estate. You can live in it, but it's also got wheels <laughs> like at some point. But now what did you do with that? So you mentioned you had uh, bought this guru course that uh, sounded awesome. And then uh, <laughs> what, what happened with the fifty fifty dollar uh, uh, vehicle? Slash- yes. So it gets better. So I bought it and literally within, I think, two hours had it sold. Oh, wait. So I, <laughs> it was great. It was like my, my favorite deal. You didn't fix it up much, did you? I mean, I did, but it was pre-sold. So I bought it and it was in, so that's the thing with trailer parks. I think people think of like 8 Mile and Eminem when they think of like a trailer <laughs> park, but like they're not all like that. Some of them are really nice. And this one was right outside of Seattle, backing up to like a national park. It was like a campground almost, but it happened to be manufactured homes. So I had bought it, not knowing what I was getting myself into, but I figured for 50 bucks, like even if I have to rebuild the whole thing, I should come out okay. And I put my sign in the window that it was for sale. And literally like an hour later, a lady knocks on the door and she's like, my daughter lives in this area with my grandkids. I'm trying to move here. I'm retired. Houses cost too much. This is exactly what I'm looking for. How much are you selling it for? And I'm like, I don't know. I've it for 45 minutes, lady. Like, I have no idea at this point. So like immediate interest. I come up with a number just kind of on the fly. I think I told her like 32,000, something like that. It was just a single wide from the 80s. So I just turn around and I'm like 30 grand. We're going to update a few things in here. Give me 30 days. So within an hour, I'd bought it for 50 bucks, sold it for 30 grand. And now I had 30 days to kind of figure out the rest. <laughs> what? Did this actually end up working? Like you sold it to yeah. the lady that said she was interested, which I I would have guessed she would have probably flaked out between then and 30 days later, but no. Yeah. Immediate. Nope. Um, it was exactly what she was looking for. She'd been looking in the area forever. And so when something came up and she was like, she was thrilled it was going to be fixed up at all. She thought she was going to have to deal with all this. So when she found out that it would have anything kind of updated on it, she was like over the moon. So we had it sold immediately. Um, and this one had needed a bit more work. So I had done several up to this point and I was doing the work myself. And so on this one, it needed some more stuff. And so I had hired a contractor um, and he ended up completely flaking. He did a ton of stuff that needed to be redone. He like closed some wiring in the wall and shorted out the whole home, like all kinds of stuff. So I've got this 30 day timeline because it's sold. Like I sold this already (laughs) and halfway through I have to fire the contractor and now I'm just doing stuff. I'm like, well, this bathtub had a big moldy hole in the wall behind it. Now I've got to call in a mold specialist and then I am now learning how to reinforce a tub and drywall. Now I need to do flooring. Now I need to redo countertops. It was like a crash course on how to do a little bit of everything in a home, but it was a mobile home. So I felt a little better about it because like (laughs) the expectations were a little lower than like a high end flip. Um, But yeah, it I mean, it worked out. It was just a little a little rough in between there when we had to fire that contractor. I was working in a tax firm. I'd get off at 5 p.m. and then I'd go work on this mobile till 10 p.m. when it was quiet hours to get this work done before the 30 day mark. Wow, that's a great story. Now, did you lead to any other, uh, after you closed on the the sale of it, did you go on to other mobile home purchases and sales or like what, what happened with the uh, the progression here 
of being yeah. the mogul of the mobile home community. <laughs> so this funny thing happens, and this is why, like, I think people ignore mobile homes because they're like, ah, oh, like that's not it's not sexy, right? Like, no one's making an HGTV show called like Trailer Trash, and it's like people hanging out in a mobile home park, that like fixing. That's a great these. idea, though. It's <laughs> a great idea. I would watch it, right? But they're not a bad option, man. Like it's such a good way to get started without risk and kind of learn things. And this thing happens where, so after I did that one, the park owner was like, well, we just foreclosed on this other one and it's trash. Do you want to buy this? Because you did a good job on this one. This park is filled with old mobile homes. Like how many do you want? So like now you just create this funnel to yourself of potential leads in this park. If you're like, if you're on good terms with the owner, you're helping, like, that's a great agreement. You're just improving their value of their overall property. So it works out really good for both people. And they're selling to you $50 at a time. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, well, the going price is 50 so that's where we're at. <laughs> so it's always worse when you get spoiled right, right off the start. And then and then it's like, what? $5,000? $10,000? Come on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's you're just setting yourself up for disappointments after your infinite returns. On after 50 bucks. Yeah. So uh, now you were working as a, a tax uh, professional at the time. You were a, a certified public accountant, correct? So I'm an enrolled agent. So I'm just licensed federally through the IRS instead of the state, but kind of same thing, just a tax professional. Got it. Now, were you living, you were living in the Seattle, Washington area at the time. And now that's changed since then, correct? You live on the East Coast? Yeah, yeah. Now I'm outside of Charlotte because I didn't want to keep spending that much money for. Well, I mean, fifty dollars I would have kept spending. For yeah, properties. I didn't want to I... have to step up to <laughs> full price houses. <laughs> yeah. So, how long did you live in the Seattle area? I was out there for probably five years, okay. um, and got out of college. And like the same time I started in tax is when I started in real estate. It was literally like the weekend I graduated was when I took the guru course, um, and then tried wholesaling, but. In Seattle, professional wholesalers are spending like they've got crazy marketing budgets and it, that's awesome, but like it's hard to compete when you're new. So that's how I kind of pivoted into this. So I tell you what, yeah. those guru courses, they can be a real scam. And I, I remember once I had somebody come up to me and uh, I, I run the local RIA group and she went to another meeting got hoaxed into this free event then it was gonna be a thousand dollars and it's gonna be twenty thousand dollars and then now she's going to vegas and they they put like 10 credit cards in her name maxed up uh, somewhere 50 to seventy thousand dollars suggested contractors for her to use in this property in a small town outside of here that was terrible and then the contractors all took her uh and it was one of those you know people that you saw on tv that publicized it and then it just led into it she came in tears and i was like I, I, know, I had nothing I could do to fix her besides console her and just give her some advice on how to get out of it. So, Natalie, how how did you end up being uh, – and we we know you, or at least we feel like we know you, because you have kind of blown up in the last few years in relation to giving tax advice specifically to real estate investors. How have you carved out a niche in this space, and how have you been able? How have you been able to grow your own firm? Because you worked for uh, a, what a tax preparer, tax uh, strategy CPA firm uh, at some point, right? That was that how you kind of started out. Yeah, and then, I was just working at CPA firms. Yeah, and then what process, or I guess, how did you end up growing your business and then hanging your own shingle with? Uh, and can you tell us what the name of your your company is now? Yeah, just Kaladi Tax and Consulting. Kaladi Tax and Consulting. Okay, perfect. Um, how did you get there? Um, it wasn't actually planned. So much like the $50 trailer, it was kind of another like jump in and this should work itself out. 
So this cool thing happens in tax. I think it happens in a lot of industries where if you're good at something, you now get to do all of it. Like they're now just sending you all of that work. So I got into it knowing real estate and or like starting to know real estate. And it's actually, this is how I found bigger pockets too, was I took this course and I was like, I paid three grand and I still have no idea what's going on. So I jumped on bigger pockets, like just as kind of Googling answers, trying to figure out the nuances that they don't teach you. Cause in the course, it's like, here's a simple five-step process. This is all you need to do. There's nothing else that could possibly go wrong. So I ended up on bigger pockets. So I'm on there trying to learn about real estate more. And then people are asking tax questions. And as I'm getting better at tax, I'm answering more and more tax questions. And so the two things just kind of grew at the same time where it was just, you know, I'm one of my favorite things of bigger pockets is that it is really a community where it should be an, like an abundance mindset. Like just be helpful and do what you can and answer questions for people. And you will find more deals and you will network with more amazing people and you will really do so much for yourself versus the like cold DMing everyone and like, I've got an offer for you. Like you just start, it's a community. So that was kind of what happened there. And then I started bringing in real estate clients to the tax firm where I was working. But then it got to a point where like the partner of the firm was telling me I couldn't do stuff that I legally knew we could because a lot of tax professionals aren't specialized in real estate. So they don't know the nuances. So I don't want to say it was out of spite, but it was kind of like, well, if you're telling me I'm going to have to like screw over my clients that you, we can't do these things that we can do, I'm going to go do this on my own. And so I sort of, it wasn't my intention. I wasn't like, I have a 10 year track to open my own firm. I was like, I think I can do a better job, become specialized in one thing. I'd always rather work with someone who's like an expert at what they do instead of sort of dabbles. Um, and I've just been working exclusively with real estate investors since. So probably since like 2015. Man, that is so cool. I, I want to tell you something. This is a kind of a, a feather for your cap. I remember uh, noticing your responses in the forum threads just randomly. Like over, over the years, I was in, I was a big fanboy of Bigger Pockets when it first came out. So I kind of feel like I was there from the beginning or at least thereabouts. And I, I remember seeing you kind of chime in on some tax-related questions. And I was like, huh. And you have kind of a unique name also, so that helps a little bit, right? Because it, it helps, helps yeah. slash hurts, I, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say my perception of this whole evolution that you've gone through is you started out going there to learn. You ended up going there to teach. And that underscored credibility over time that led to, and I'm not saying I'm, they don't have credit for what you've done with your, your own firm, but right. <laughs> you, uh, you certainly had a voice on a forum with a captive audience that led to kind of a springboard and instant credibility with a lot of national, you know, or even international audience. Right. So I think yeah. that's pretty freaking cool. You know, you you were in a public forum talking about real estate, and all of a sudden now you've uh, you've had some success out of that. And not 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 that this is all about bigger pockets, but have you been able to leverage that experience on the forums and kind of putting out your own content and articles and all that into gaining some customers, like some national ones, maybe that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, when I started my firm, I've never like 
paid for advertising. I've never had to do any of that. And that's what I think a lot of tax people struggle with at first because they're like, well, how do I find clients? And I kind of had the opposite where where I started, people were like, oh, good. We've been following you for years. Now we can finally work with you. We didn't want to go to whatever random firm that you just happened to be working at. So it creates sort of this like, it's like, a, it, like I said, it's a community, right? So like if you have given enough value back, people will want to work with you. You've shown that you know what you're doing and you're not being like a jerk about it and like paywalling everything. Like you're just out there being helpful. And then, you know, when you have something to offer, people are going to want to support you in return. Yeah, I mean, once you give, you always get back, right? Yeah, I think your karma points are uh, racking up in your in your uh, <laughs> in your uh, uh, to your benefit here. Well, do you mind if we uh, transition a little bit into kind of the brass tacks of the episode here? Since we uh, definitely mm-hmm. wanted to get you on and and uh, a little bit due to your suggestion on this uh, before the year end, right? So there's some things maybe that real estate investors some smart moves they can make toward the end of a tax year to help prepare them for success in the following year. Uh, do you think maybe this is a good use of time here to go through some, uh, some things that you've discovered over the years and some advice? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few kind of big ones that are worth touching on for this year. The biggest one, we've heard this all over the place, but it can't be said enough. 2022 is the last year for 100% bonus depreciation. Awesome. And so if... <laughs> <laughs> is that like the hottest uh, word everywhere is cost segregation? Is that like, is it consume it is. everything that you do? Yes, it does. Between, like, <laughs> it is the thing I am constantly asked about. And keep in mind, it doesn't help everyone. Like it can, but it doesn't. So like so many people are like, everyone needs to do a cost segregation before you take your next breath to do a cost segregation. But like talk to your tax person first. It might not help you. But bonus depreciation basically says if you buy a house and we do a cost segregation, which breaks apart components of it into sort of littler components instead of just a house, now we have floors, windows, etc. Some of those with a shorter life, bonus depreciation says you can write it all off this year. So for 2022, that is 100% of that cost. And so on average, 25% of the building value qualifies. So if your building value is 100 grand, we can create a $25,000 deduction for this year specifically. Next year for 2023, that amount goes to 80%. So it would only be 80% of that cost. Um, So the important thing to kind of be mindful of for like right now, year end, is that you don't have to do the cost segregation by December 31st. Please stop harassing these poor cost segregating people because you don't need to bother them in the next like 20 days. Like you've got time. Your rental though, the property you are thinking about doing a cost segregation on, does need to be in service by the end of the year. So it has to be ready and available for rent. So if you're closing today and you've got to do like a six month renovation before it's even like able to be listed, you might miss the boat on this. If you have anything right on the verge there, like if you are um, negotiating on a tenant occupied property, because then it would be in service when you bought it, it had tenants, try to close by December 31st. If you are trying to finish up a reno to list a property, try to do it by December 31st. That's the like lock-in date to have that property ready by year end. And then you could do a cost segregation at any point before you file your taxes and create that big write-off for the year. Question for you on the uh, on, on getting it placed into service. That That's a an event, right? What the IRS considers <laughs> like, okay, this is happening. It's now a rental property officially. Now, do you have to go out and like hold up one of those uh, signs that you, you know people spin around on the edge of the street and say, "Hey, this thing has now been placed into service," or is this just a, a function of like, "Okay, I'm going to make a note in my notes that today this thing is now a rental property." 
Like, what is the announcement that has to happen in order for that to be official? Yeah, well, the most formal way per the tax code is to actually get one of those wacky, wavy, inflatable arm flailing tube men and put (laughs) that in the yard. But if you cannot do that, then the second best option, sign spinner. Third best option, I guess. And those are tax deductible also. (laughs) We know we have a comedian here, too. (laughs) (laughs) So those are your best options. If you've got to do it the boring way, maybe you're on a budget or whatever the case, um, there's a few things that sort of show it's in service. Being able to advertise it appropriately, right? So like if, if you're a few weeks out from it being move-in ready, that's a reasonable time. You'd start showing tenants normally, start listing it. Um, if there's any like occupancy permits or like things like that that you legally need from the city to have it be a, like a legal up-to-date dwelling, um, getting those in service, like getting those um, okays. So those are kind of your big things that work. Um, but... Yeah, just really, it has to just be ready and available for rent is sort of the deemed writing. So if you would feel comfortable taking pictures of it and or walking a prospective tenant through it, anytime around that point, you just want to document it as best you can, right? So like I said, listing it online or emailing your agent saying, hey, this will be ready to go in two weeks. Can you get this rolling? You just have to sort of show that it was ready to be. It's Think of it like opening your doors on a new business. Like that's your tape cutting ceremony is basically telling someone you've got this rental and you can live in it. I got two follow-up questions. This uh, first off, okay. you mentioned uh, it goes down eighty percent next year. Uh, is it my understanding that it goes down twenty percent every year from that point all the way down to zero, and then it's over, or how's that? So I think it goes through twenty twenty-five or twenty-six right now. Bonus depreciation used to be fifty percent, um, okay. and then every like every pretty much election year they throw around new tax things to get everyone excited, worked up, whatever. So if it'll actually disappear, I, I would guess no, because people would be upset. Um, but as of right now, it is set to just drop down another 20% each year. So the kind of longer you wait, the you lose out a little bit. When, you know, when I first learned about cost seg, I mean, how it was explained to me, you know, a year plus ago was that this was only going to be on multifamilies. And so anytime I ever heard this conversation, it was, Hey, I got this apartment building. I'm going to do a cost seg. And it wasn't till, uh, the last in four to six months that I've recently, Maybe it was even at bigger pockets when you were speaking, but I w- that I recently discovered that you could do the single family. Actually, it was I think it was at bigger pockets listening to you, <laughs> and uh, and and you mentioned that you can do this on single family properties or Airbnbs or whatever. Not mm-hmm. um, what makes a good property to decide to do this cost seg on if it is a single family or a small multi. Yeah, so a few things changed. Like we used to all hear it was only for big commercial properties because they used to be really expensive to do. So if you had to spend 10 grand to get a write-off, you wouldn't get enough of a benefit on a small property if it was something that only cost $100,000. Now, there are a few options. Like you can still have them done on on single families and these cost segregation engineers have sort of brought some of the price points down so you can get them done for like 1,500, two grand. There's also do-it-yourself ones where you're sort of putting information into a form that's using kind of a database of information to give you amounts. I will say, so this is fine. It's usable. Um, talk to your accountant and kind of weigh your risk tolerance because they're what they basically are doing is just splitting the cost through everything in this property, but a lot of it doesn't make sense. Like I just had one where it was a 600 square foot cottage in like Gatlinburg. So it was like $900,000, obviously. And the kitchen appliances, the amount they allocated to those was like $22,000. And they were literally like a set of black appliances you can buy new at Lowe's for two, two grand. So 
it's allowable, but just know that that's sort of lowest on the IRS's scale of like ways you should do this. Like working with a professional is sort of higher than doing the DIY ones. But in terms of what property makes sense for it, I tell people, look at a few things. The first thing is if you'll be able to use those losses. So step one, talk to your accountant about passive loss limits. Rentals are passive. So if you make too much money, you can't always deduct the losses they create in that same year. They don't disappear or anything. My favorite way to explain this is like playing Super Mario. If you already have the raccoon tail and you get the little star, it just like hovers at the top of the screen in the box till you can use it. That's your losses. They're just going to hover there till <laughs> you can use it. talking one's language right now. Yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah. Gamer, see how excited he gets when he's that? <laughs> it's like my, it's my great favorite analogy, example. Great actually. Great analogy. Like it's there. Yeah. You just can't use it till you get bit by a Koopa. Yeah, like it's hanging out. So you still have them for later. So see if even creating a big loss is going to help you, right? Like that's step one. Step two is look at the property and its cost and value and if the cost benefit is there. If it's a $40,000 property and it's going to cost you two grand to create a write-off of $1,500, eh, that doesn't make sense. So start by talking to your tax professional and reaching out to a cost seg firm and seeing, they'll always give you an estimate and see if kind of the cost benefit's worth it. Now, you mentioned that you can do, which... I didn't know this, but it makes sense. You can kind of DIY a cost seg if you really wanted to be frugal about it, which, you know, uh, what Ted Bundy represented himself in, a, a you know, multiple murder trials. Uh, so I don't know if that's the best strategy by doing it yourself when you have something on the line like this. Yeah. I like their video game analogy. Oh, okay. All right. All right. That also works. All right. Zero colors aside. Um <laughs> What can one expect, or do you have maybe? Uh, and I know you mentioned it. Just is is the juice worth the squeeze? To you know, throw a term here. Um, yeah. Is there a rule of thumb that that works where it's like you know what? If it's below five hundred grand, just it's probably not worth worth your while. Or is it a million bucks? Or is it? Is there something like that out there? Uh, not really, because the thing is, everyone's tax situation is different, right? So like. Even if doing a cost seg on one property might not make sense to you, um, there might be a circumstance where if you have a portfolio, doing several might put you in a better position, or there might be a reason you need to drop your income specifically this year. So there's kind of the, like a rule of thumb. I would say if you're under 300, there's a good chance that it's going to probably cost more than the benefit, but I wouldn't 100% rule it out. Like still bring it up, but don't like put this on your Christmas mailer yet that like we're doing a cost egg this year. It's going to save us millions. Like don't, don't be married to this idea yet we'll, until we'll you put like, it on a, a little podcast. further. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. You heard it here first folks, 300,000, <laughs> maybe the bare minimum. Damn it. Maybe you should have some extra cost eggs last year. <laughs> yeah, I probably should have. <laughs> or I hired Natalie. Well, that also could be true. Uh, okay. So this is good stuff. Any, any other th maybe uh, things to add on the cost segregation part of it? Is there, uh, so there are firms, it sounds like, out there that specialize in this kind of thing, and you can basically just Google them or find referrals from other successful real estate investors that have used a cost segregation firm. Are you able to do them as a uh, tax strategist slash accountant? So I don't do them in-house. I refer it out to firms that do this wholeheartedly. Um, so Madison Speck is a great one to start talking with. Yona Weiss, he's on a bunch of podcasts, and he's an, like so smart when it comes to these. He's kind of the man on these. So I would start there. 
see if that's a good fit and used, they'll give you a good estimate. You can kind of go from I there. used Yona last year and they did a, they did a good job. I mean, as far as I know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, they're, they're, uh, they're good. Madison spec, uh, Yona Weiss, uh, check them out. We can link to them in the show notes. They're a, they're a good cost seg firm. Uh, but no, that's good stuff. So kind of in, in the same vein of, uh, tax delaying strategies uh maybe could we talk about 1031 exchanges uh yeah what are your thoughts on those any upcoming legislation that we should be worried about or mindful of and how can an investor use a 1031 to best you know utilize their tax situation and not have to be burdened with a heavy tax bill at the end of the year Yeah. So no legislation that I know of. And for what it's worth, I freaking hate talking about tax legislation before it's finalized because there's so much stuff thrown around to like get people upset and like sharing it. And then like one tenth of it actually happens. So I'm not going to actually take my time to read a bunch of imaginary laws till they're till they're real. So nothing that I know of, but keep in mind, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago, you used to be able to do a 1031 exchange. Or for those who don't know, this lets you sell a business asset and defer the gain. It doesn't disappear. You're just like pushing it off to later, as long as you replace it with a more expensive business asset. Um, and you used to be able to do this on anything like cars, machinery. And a few years ago, they switched it to only real estate. So um, for what it's worth, I think just don't make this your be all end all like strategy like don't have this be your only out plan because they've shown that they can cut it and will so have other options in in mind um i love 1031 exchanges i think they make sense for a lot of people but look at the big picture this is kind of the difference with a tax strategist versus a preparer is look at your next several years right like it might be cheaper for you to pay tax today if you're on an upward projection and you're just like this podcast is about to go hella like super viral and you guys are going to be billionaires by next year hella viral yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of the right word for it, and that definitely wasn't it. But that's what we got, so I'm. That's what you, so you guys have to work with. Um. Don't worry, we make each other make fun of each other all the time on this. There's words I say, words he say, and we we, we make each other for it. Too much time on TikTok, but so it might be better to pay tax this year versus push it off to down the road. You might be in a higher tax bracket down the road, so look at all of it. Um, but a really good kind of mention point here is if you want to do a 1031 and a cost seg together, which you can do, you can 1031 sell a property, buy a new more expensive one, and then do a cost seg on that new one. There's a specific tax selection your accountant has to make related to that so that the full value qualifies. Otherwise, only your new like extra value does. Like any of the value that kind of rolled over from the old property is out. So if you're Thinking about doing that, make sure your accountant is familiar with this. Ask them, hey, you know, I'm going to do a 1031 and do a cost seg on the new one. Um, do you know about the, I think it's 1.168 election is like what you should just me- mention. If they got no idea what you're talking about, like maybe get another opinion because that can cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, along the lines of uh, you you mentioned cost segregation firms that specialize in this sort of thing. Do you think it's a good idea? Is it is it the only way? How does one go about, uh, do, like if I'm going to sell a property and I'm like, yeah, you know what, I just want to roll this into another one because I'm going to have a pretty sizable taxable gain, or at least for my, my current year period, and maybe looking ahead, like you mentioned a little bit in the two to three, four or five year lens, you know what, Make this makes sense. I should probably just roll this and defer my taxes. 
is there are there firms like title companies, attorneys? Do people specialize in ten thirty one exchanges? Would you mind just kind of going briefly into the uh, mechanics of a, a ten thirty one transaction? What what, what yeah. can I do? What can I do? What should I do? Yeah, absolutely. So before you even start one, start by talking to your accountant and see like what you're talking about those little hovering losses in your Super Nintendo box. Um, if you have those built up. Those will always offset a gain if you have a gain from selling a property. So step one is see if like you might just have a piggy bank of losses to sell tax-free without having to do a 1031. So like check that first. Um, step two is you need to have a 1031 intermediary who handles the transaction. It needs to be involved. It needs to go through them before you sell. So if you've already sold the property and it's like two weeks later and you're like, oh, I'm thinking about doing a 1031. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> like You can keep thinking, but that's, that's as far as we're going there. So they have to be involved from the start. And when you do a 1031, you have um, 45 days from the point that you sell your property to identify up to three replacements. And then you have 180 days to close on at least one of those three. So you're on a time constraint. So especially with the way the market's been and how hard it's been to find stuff, it can be a huge pain to try to find a good replacement that's better than what you're selling. So kind of be mindful of that. Like be aware, there's also an option to do a reverse exchange. It's more complicated and costs more, but this lets you find your end property first and be like, I'm gonna close on this apartment building and start from that end of it, get that under contract and then work backwards to selling yours. So there's more than one way to structure them. Now on the uh, on the topic of having replacement properties lined up, are there any other like subsections of this, you know, like little known or uh, not a whole lot is known about this IRS uh, category? But can you identify more than three properties? Is that is that a thing? Like, is there another way to do this? Uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you can. Um, it's generally discouraged because there's a weird rule tied to it and. Don't 100% cite me on this, but it's real close to this. But it's like if you identify more than three and the value of those combined is more than 200% of what you're selling, you're required to close on, I think it's 90% of those or it voids the 1031. So if you get into four or five properties, you're now required to buy more just to meet the requirement. Um, so be mindful of that. Um, but another thing I tell people to kind of have as a card in your deck is a DST, a Delaware Statutory Trust. Do you guys, have you guys? Let's that. hear about this. Yeah. yeah. I love DSTs. <laughs> so they are, <laughs> so they're a type of like a syndication, but they're the, so with a 1031, it has to be like kind, which means you, it doesn't mean you have to sell land and buy land or sell an apartment and buy an apartment, just real estate for real estate. So normally you can't sell and put your money into a syndication because in a syndication, like a typical publicly traded partnership, you don't own any, you're, what you're actually buying is a, a, an interest in a partnership, not real estate. So it doesn't count. A Delaware statutory trust or a DST, it's a specific entity structure. And because of how it's like legal confines read, if you are buying into it, you are actually owning a fraction of all of the assets within it. So what you'll see is the um, deal facilitator, the syndicator will buy, it's typically like um, large A, B class real estate. You know, you'll have apartment complexes or shopping malls, mobile home parks, things like this. And it qualifies for a 1031. So most of them do require you to be an accredited investor. And most of them have a $100,000 minimum park. And they're not really liquid. So your money's tied up for the 
the duration of the term for when they stabilize the property till they decide to sell, it's typically like seven, 10 years. But like I said, you can list up to three properties. And if it's real hard to find one, having a DST be your third option, it can be somewhere that they call it like your 1031-911. Like if you're down to the last week and you're like, oh crap, I can't find anything. You can plop your money in this passive investment for seven years and then do another 1031 at the end of it. Like try again later when the market's less insane. So just something to kind of... You might need to copyright that saying. That was that kind of flowed really well. <laughs> I've never, I've never heard of this. I like, either. Uh, and I've done ten thirty one exchanges and and cost segregation studies. Like this is. So you're saying you can create an entity called a Delaware statutory trust? Is that is that what I heard? And then mm-hmm. maybe. So yeah, like, this is this is crazy. Uh, this is great great stuff. Um. Well, we'll we'll dig into that a little bit more and, and maybe link to this specific thing in the IRS code. I'm assuming there's something in there. It's like an arcane entry and is you, yeah. you know offhand what the, what the uh, code is. I don't cause it's specific to Delaware. It's like a Delaware state okay. legal code that describes the confines of this trust that's started there. Um, EST. Yeah. Huh. Del- mm-hmm. All right. Now we know. Now we know. Well, I, I've got a couple questions for you. Yeah. So, a professional like yourself, you know, people listening to this might not have the capacity of taking on, you know, doing all this themselves, obviously, and hiring a professional like you. Um, and if you're not available, what kind of questions should you be asking uh, your accountant to see if they are the right professional for you? What advice do you have on that area? Yeah, this is so tricky because there's a few things happening in tax as a starting point, like, a lot of industries are so short-staffed and it's no different here. For every five accountants retiring, there's one joining. So the problem happening right now is those who are good at this are really, really busy and getting expensive. And those who are not really busy, you should be questioning why they are not really busy. So it gets a little tricky. Um, but typically what I tell people, if you're investing in real estate and you want to work with someone, because if you call any CPA firm, any accountant, and you're like, oh, do you know how to deal with rental properties? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. We do 50 of these a day. Like, no big deal. And um, I'm not going to say it's a lie, but they don't know what they don't know kind of thing. Like they're only looking at it. They're going to take your numbers, put it on a form and be like, nailed it. The end. Um, So what I would ask them kind of specifics that are sort of my test questions is ask if your rental properties qualify for the 199A deduction or the QBI deduction. This came out a few years ago in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It's a 20% deduction on any business income. And so what this means is your accountant has to understand when a rental is or is not a business and those code sections. Um, so if they tell you automatically, no, rentals are passive, they don't qualify, or only with the safe harbor, or the, like the answer is almost all rentals qualify. The definition of a business to the IRS is regular and continuous involvement for profit motive. So like most rentals qualify. So that's a good question to run past. Now, somebody like me, I, uh, all, almost all my portfolio is uh, short-term rentals. And some midterms. Uh, and I was told that the best question to ask in those fields would be, is your properties available in a S- Schedule E versus a Schedule C? And a Schedule C is definitely not uh, the right area for that. Can you explain a little bit of that? And it, am I even right on that, how I state Yeah. Yeah. This is something I feel so passionately about that I got tired of arguing with other professionals in Facebook groups about it. And I now just applied to be the educator at the National Tax Forum on it. Just so you know, I learned this. I learned so, this from listening. You know, good, good for you. That's awesome. 
So, so all my knowledge in this area is because of Natalie. I was giving all that credit to her. Like you told me this thing one time. Were you lying? I was not. So short-term rentals, typically any rental goes on Schedule E. That is the form for reporting rental income, right? The end. So unless your property is not a rental, which would be like a something totally active and ordinary. We'll come back to that. It shouldn't, it almost should never be on schedule C. Um, anything on schedule C is an ordinary business, right? If you're wholesaling houses, if you are an agent, if you are a dog groomer, any business goes on schedule C and it pays self-employment tax, which is an extra 15.3% tax on earnings. Rentals don't pay that. So that's already like one of the huge bonuses of real estate. So if your accountant is like screwing you over by putting it there for no reason, question that. If your short-term rental is on Schedule E, and if you materially participate, and there's seven different tests for this, but it's basically just essentially being involved in your property. And if the average length of stay is seven days or less, it falls into this in-between category where it is not passive. And what that means is it's still a rental. It still goes on Schedule E, but those limits we were talking about earlier, where if you make too much money, you can't use losses, those disappear. So now you can deduct any losses you generate with that property. So now a cost seg becomes much more attractive because now if your short-term rental does a cost seg and creates a $200,000 loss, you can use that to zero out your W-2 income. So like that's huge. The only time your rental should move over to Schedule C is if it is both under seven days and there's substantial services. And to the IRS, that's more like a hotel so if you're cleaning every day, you're offering daily turndown service, daily cleaning, daily, you know, making the beds, meals, um, these extra services that you would get at like a bed and breakfast or a hotel, then it should be on Schedule C. But a lot of accountants jump the gun on that and they're like, oh, well, they clean between guests. But okay, even on a long-term rental, you clean the unit before you re-rent it. That doesn't qualify. So I do only real estate and I think I've only had less than five short-term rentals that are on Schedule C. So very rarely should it be there. So if your um, accountant says it goes there or if it's on your Schedule C, get another opinion because you can also do a refund three years back. So like you might be able to fix this and get some money back if it's there incorrectly. Anybody that has a short-term rental or is considering buying one, rewind this and listen to this part again because I didn't know any of what was just said here. Granted, I don't have one. I know you have several, Ted, Mm -hmm. but did you know all of this? I know you knew a little bit from listening to Natalie. I, before, I only but. know what I know just from listening to Natalie. Literally, I mean, I I got that knowledge nowhere else, but li- actually paying attention to her Instagram and listening to her podcast. I this is awesome. I thank you so much for sharing this part of it. And I, I wanted to, uh, if it's okay, I wanted to bring up. I know I I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but can we talk about the real estate professional status or reps? How does somebody, what is it? How does somebody qualify for it? And how does it, you know, play into tax planning strategies? Yeah. So that same, again, that passive loss limit where if you make too much, you can't use your rental losses. A real estate professional isn't subject to that limit. It technically makes all of their rentals non-passive as long as they're materially participating in them. So the reason we have this was because several years back, we got an investment income tax kind of an added on tax, and it was basically an extra tax on investments. But people whose full-time job was real estate investments were like, hold up, this is my actual job. I don't think I should pay that. It's I'm participating. I'm running this business. So they created this sort of loophole. So a real estate professional is an IRS status where you have to spend more time on real estate than any other business or activity or job. Um, So that's the biggest thing because a lot of people 
have a full-time W-2 and try to meet this. And constantly the tax courts are just embarrassing them about it. Like, no, there's a, I think once. Like, has nice ever try, pat them on the head. <laughs> like, yes. we'll see you next time. Go ahead and file yeah. this, pay, pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So more time on real estate than anything else and 750 hours a year. Um, and it has to be on your properties, right? You can't sit around and browse Google for like 10 hours a day and say you're like researching properties and have that count. It has to be actual involved time. Um, and it's highly desirable because then, like I said, you can create these losses, no limits. You can use it to offset your other income. Kind of the best way to approach this, not best, but a great option to look at is if you're married, only one spouse needs to qualify. So if one of you hates your jobs, congratulations, you now manage these rentals and the other person keeps working and you both get the benefit. Good thing I'm a realtor already, so I don't need to worry about this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, I got a question for you. Um, there's a lot of talk right now with the IRS hi- potentially hiring a ton of auditors, right? Uh, I, yeah. Which I'm sure you're <laughs> super excited about, right? <laughs> what is the plan uh, as this starts rolling out? I'm assuming that you are like aggressively planning for a ton of audits to start coming out. And what advice are you getting your clients starting to avoid a audit in the future? Actually, hang on. Are you not an IRS audit? Like, do you not work for the IRS in some capacity? Did I not see that on your profile somewhere? No. So an enrolled agent is just a type of tax license. So like a CPA is a license through a state tax organization. And then an EA is just a license through the IRS. Okay. So you're not. But I don't actually work for them. No, they're just too like, no, I am not the enemy. No, (laughs) absolutely not. No, working for the IRS. So here are my thoughts on the hiring of new agents, right? It's supposed to be like 80,000 new agents or something, but they've had 20,000 job openings for the last several years. So like, I'm not super concerned about it because like, um, no one wants to work for the IRS. <laughs> no one wants to be the enemy. That is like what they threatened us with in college. Like if you graduate with a C average, the only place you can work is the IRS. So like, yeah. So sorry if there's IRS auditors listening. I'm really sorry. Don't send me hate mail. Throwing but... shade. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> shade though. IRS, hey, IRS.gov slash careers. <laughs> You're a yeah. C average student. That might be where you want to go. Check it out. I mean, for sure. It's a great job for a lot of people. Boy, yeah, that is not for me. But so it's going to take them forever to find people as a starting point. As of right now, they're eight months out opening mail. They're answering less than 6% of phone calls. So like, I'm just hoping they start functioning in any way first. Like, I think that's sort of, so like, but I, I, I am not super worried about it, to be quite honest. Like if your accountant is good at what they do, um, they will also not be worried about it because again, the, the people at the IRS are going to be new. They're going to be untrained. So even if there are audits, if your accountant's good at this, that should not be a hard fight to win. <laughs> But I am also not super concerned about it. I think it's going to be years before this like manifests into anything negative towards taxpayers. As a real estate investor, though, is there any tips that you'd recommend to try to avoid the the audit process? What's kind of the the big flag items that you could do that would uh, put you on your list? Oh yeah, stop doing sketchy shit and lying to your accountants. That's the biggest thing. <laughs> so many real estate investors okay. like speaking my own oh, here. <laughs> Like, there's so many great legal ways to do this that when clients try to like hide stuff they're doing or like structure it in some, I just had someone reach out where an attorney had told her she could use a specific trust type and it didn't ever pay capital gains and all these other things. And I was like, no, 
nope, that's a lie. And she was like, he said 99% of accountants don't understand this tax code and that you were going to say that. And I was like, or, <laughs> or that's a lie. So the biggest thing is like, be transparent with what you're trying to do with your accountant, like what you're real, because that's the other thing is a lot of accountants don't know real estate. So like if you're doing a subject to deal or something like that, like you're now giving them documents with someone else's name on the loan and they're going to be like, what is this? Explain, like be clear about what you're doing so it's well documented. And then if you're audited, it's not a big deal. They can clear it up. I love it. Well, we want to be uh, mindful of your time here. We know you got, you're highly in demand at this time of year. <laughs> so we're almost out of time. Let's get into the OT with Owen and Ted. You are in the OT with Owen and Ted, presented by JM Real Estate Capital. Hi, it's Rob, JM Real Estate Capital. We're the money guys that you need to know for all your real estate investments. Talk to us. We can do what your local bank can't or won't do. We don't have millions. We have trillions with a T to lend. 844-WE-CLOSE or go online at jmrecapital.com. That's jmrecapital.com. JM Real Estate Capital. Smart solutions for the real estate investor. So we have uh, the same questions that we ask every guest on every episode. Are you ready? You have no, you have no idea what's coming to you. No, I didn't yes. see the text right. ahead of Perfect. time. So we're this yeah. is... <laughs> we want to watch your impressions in detail here. Uh, okay, in detail. <laughs> All right, here here's a question for you. When you write your first book, or if you have already written it, and have you? I it is in process. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is, is it? Is this? I mean, just so you know, we are officially known for people announcing their books, and and it, and it happens to just be a bigger pockets person every time. Sarah Weaver announced thirty days stay on here. Everybody yeah. else. Yep. That's uh, true. Brandon talked about Turner talked about something coming down the road for next year. We had Jamil talk about a book coming. With <laughs> oh, she she pulled up the book. She just yeah. Look at yeah. that. The two books I'm reading right now are how to get published in the thirty day stay. You know. You know. <laughs> We, uh, if if you uh, if you're in if you're hanging out with Sarah Weaver and uh, look up Owen, she uh, in her phone has an Owen label as Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Owen, Uncle Owen because of me because they're both from some small town and it's weirdly related. Uh, not weirdly, <laughs> where it's normally related. Uh, so, can you share what your title is going to be, or is that still being worked on? I have no title yet. I keep thinking about calling it real estate is taxing and just like oh, a wow, series yeah. of all the mistakes and horror stories and like how to avoid them. Real estate is taxing. Yeah. That's actually really catchy. I right love there. it. Yeah. Right? Hey, uh, so this is a little bit of an offshoot of this question, but like what is the most bizarre or like strangest situation you have walked into that a customer of yours has brought into your office that you've had to deal with tax wise? Yeah, not bizarre, but kind of something that I think a lot of accountants wouldn't know what to deal with. And I'm a very like non-judgmental person, but trying to figure out a house hack for someone when like you rent bedrooms in your house and they kept telling me all of the rooms were shared. And I was like, no, but if you live in this one, what do your like, don't your tenants have the other ones? And they kept being like, no, but they're all shared. So after a game of question and answers and like reassuring that this was a, a safe zone, <laughs> They were in like a group relationship. So everyone it was like a compound space. Oh. And so that was a unique tax situation to figure out how to account for where they are renting rooms, but everyone is sharing all of the rooms. So it's like a commune so, it's or like, like a like culty commune situation. It's like sister, okay. sister wives. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just everyone show, was in a relationship. Yeah. No, I, I got you. I mean, being the star accountant, she is, she probably, she probably, there's probably them. Huh. <laughs> 
So anybody anybody <laughs> thinking about starting a cult out there and buying some real estate for your you know uh, con- what congregation? Yeah. Uh, look up look up Natalie and she can help you get the most appropriate tax strategy for. Great, I'm gonna be the cult accountant yeah, now. The cult accountant. <laughs> I love it, man. It just writes itself. She's got to relabel her Instagram uh, I know, label right, right now. Here we go. Hey, this yeah. is how legends are born. Embrace. This. <laughs> Uh, what did little Natalie want to be when she grew up? Ooh, that is a good question. I don't, I, I'll tell you what, it was not an accountant. No one like grows no up way. thinking they want to do this. So like, I know, I know. The thing I wanted to be before this though was a mechanic actually. I had an automotive scholarship and that's what I was planning to do. I took shop through high school and then I decided if I was like working on cars for a job, I wouldn't like it anymore. And so I pivoted because um, no one does taxes for fun. So this was the career, and now cars can stay a hobby. <laughs> do, you have, do you have some sick cars in the garage? I don't right now. Ted's a car no, guy, no. by the way. Like, you, really? Yeah, you guys oh, probably yeah. have okay. a lot to talk about off offline. And I've ran, I've ran some mechanic shops before I got into real estate. So <laughs> Then you got tired of being dirty and busted up all the time. <laughs> Everyone, I think. I, I just um, it, it was the job that you, you, you nobody was ever happy to see you. Fair and, enough. You know, yeah, I can relate. It, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's like it's like I had to be give the giver of bad news every day, all day. That's and, funny. I can relate. Yeah. Ted's face is actually half Bondo. I don't know if you knew that. Cleans <laughs> up well on this uh, app that we're using. Good thing I don't have a, the nickname Leatherface. Uh, anyway, um, so the next question for you, Natalie, is all right. Here's a deep one. Are you ready for this? Okay. okay hang on. We are at your funeral. It's very sad. Uh-huh. Your family's there. Friends are there. Who is giving your eulogy? And what do you hope they are going to say about you? Ooh, okay. Who is giving my eulogy? What are they going to say? You know, it would probably be Alex Felice because I don't think anyone could stop him from doing it if he wanted to. <laughs> and he would probably say a lot of mean things, but very endearingly. <laughs> We just scheduled Alex today for the podcast. Yeah, he's he's, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, he's gonna be on in like a month. Yeah, good. Make sure he hears this first. You you won't be able to stop him from speaking at your funeral if he wants to. Not gonna happen. Love it. It was like I think it was at BP two years ago uh, that Alex got. You know how they do the the recap photos. Mm-hmm. And oh uh, man, uh, invest her. She's from um, Valeria. Yeah, and uh, we we were doing a get low contest. And I have this uh, candid ability to do an amazing limbo. And he took a picture of us getting down, and they put it <laughs> put it in a photo. So I, I went to him, he's like, "You're the limbo guy." <laughs> uh, I I actually lost a thousand dollar bet. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, about Alex Felice, <laughs> and he, I don't know that he knows this, but we're going to bring it up on the uh, on the episode that he's on. And this is no joke; like le- legit, lost it. Do you know at BPCon? Do you know Megan Ahern, the Taddy Investor? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I lost it to her. So <laughs> oh no, no, this really happened, and we'll we'll talk about it when when he's on. So okay, it's my turn. Yeah, it's your turn. Okay, so. We're going to call you next year, next December, and we want to get you back on the RIA uh, podcast. So I just want to uh, put that out there right now. But what is going to be different in your life as far as investment portfolio? Where what What's going to be – where do you envision yourself one year from now? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I'm making a few shifts for the upcoming year, um, focusing more on tax strategy and teaching and education because I am tired of fixing other people's um, tax returns when real estate <laughs> – 
is done wrong by other accountants. So focusing there. Um, and then I am kind of going full bore on midterm rentals. So I have one right now and I love it. And I think it's a perfect hybrid strategy. I started with short term. They were too, too time involved. I know you can kind of set up systems, but I didn't get there. So midterm rentals. So the goal for this next year is three more midterm rentals. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling that's going to happen in pretty short order. Um, okay. So what are you looking for in your business right now? And anybody listening to this, how can they potentially help support you? If Are you taking on you know, additional customers? Are you looking for some real estate investors as clients? Uh, what's going on with Natalie? Yeah. So we're taking on a limited number of clients for this upcoming year. I keep the amount of people I work with smaller on purpose to kind of there's not a lot of value or like really value to be offered if you're spread thin. Like people want the advising, they want the proactive, and that takes time and kind of knowing someone. So um, I think I probably have like 16 spots left for full scale investors, but then I also do offer advising packages. So if you have a CPA you love and you've been working with them forever and you just want to make sure your real estate part is like maximized and strategized and you're not getting, you know, missing out on anything. I have something like that too, where I can help kind of guide you on that part and your current account and keep, keep handling everything else. So a couple different options. How, how does, what's the best way to approach you with, uh, you know, an, somebody that's looking for that type of a service? Uh, do you have a like links or is there a website or anything like that yeah. to go to? Yeah. So colotax.com is the tax firm website. So you can head there if you're like, Oh, I want her to just handle everything. Um, if you're like, I just want to get an advising package with her, then retaxstrategist.com has the advising packages. Um, so either of those, though, they kind of cross link. They just sort of, so reaching out either of those places or reaching out to me on Instagram as well. I'm retaxstrategist on all social. Perfect. We'll link to that in the and show notes. And don't forget your underscores. RP <laughs> yes. underscore tax underscore strategist. And right? watch out for <laughs> hackers because there's a lot of them out there. Oh, my gosh. It's awful. Yeah, so many fake ones. <laughs> Natalie, can you uh, give us some shout-outs to some mentors in uh, your life, people that have gotten to where you are, friends, families, uh, spouses, anybody? Yeah, absolutely. So people who have really sort of motivated me, I hate to bring his name up again, but Alex was honestly a huge impact in my early investing career. He's someone who sort of forces you to not suck. Um, Amanda Hahn has been great to follow and follow along her journey. John hires another tax um, person who I think super highly of, um, and just really kind of everyone on bigger pockets. Mindy Jensen is someone who's been tremendous and I loved working with over the years. So Mindy's, Mindy's a lot so of great nice. people in this community. Yeah, she, yeah, she is. Love Mindy. Yeah. <laughs> she's just the best. I mean, she's just an open soul. I mean, yeah, I she's mean, just good. She's just mm-hmm. good peeps. <laughs> With that, Natalie, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, we appreciate you. I highly recommend anybody that's uh, watching or listening this right now to add Natalie on Instagram. She is completely uh, submerged into the tax world and her everything that she does as far as her posts on, on Instagram and everything else and YouTube uh, is absolutely amazing and full of knowledge. I've been watching it now for well over a year. And I mean, I wouldn't know about the Schedule C and Schedule E and the various other things that we brought up if I if I wasn't following Natalie. And so, um, thank you so much uh, for coming on this. And with a short notice, I I, I Raven, you're listening to us, and she mentioned how how quick we did this. <laughs> um, she's like, hey, it'd be best if we got this in December. So we had to do it today, literally, to be able to get this done. So with that, Owen, we see us out on behalf of Ria Radio, Dennis Bertrand, Ted Kosh, and Owen Dashner. You've been listening to Natalie, the tax terminator, Kaladi, <laughs> signing off. <laughs> <laughs>